when I came to Australia and uh, people were asking me where is Rwanda, uh, this is something that potentially had, had an impact on my life and many people's lives to realize that actually wasn't not even, uh, it didn't make news. It was an eye-opener for me. Welcome to the AIS New South Wales Creating Cohesive Communities podcast, developed by the Association of Independent Schools New South Wales. Today, we hear from Olivia Kamea and Dr. Ari Lander, co-founders of the Kumba and Kubuka Listen and Remember Project. Olivia is a passionate classroom teacher and versatile public speaker with lived experience on the matters of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Olivia speaks of the lasting impact of the genocide and the other crimes against humanity with the message of empathy and the question of individual and collective responsibility. Dr. Ari Lander has extensive experience working with survivors of the stolen generation, the Jewish Holocaust and Rwandan genocide. He completed his doctoral thesis at the University of New South Wales in oral history and has lectured and tutored on a variety of subjects, including comparative genocide. Ari is honoured to be working with an incredible group of survivors of the genocide against the Tutsi. Join us as we share the profound journey of listening and remembering, the power of storytelling, healing and building resilience. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands and airways in which we are meeting and broadcasting today as we share our learning. We also pay respect to elders both past and present, as it is their knowledge and experiences that holds the key to the success of our future generations. Welcome and hello. How are you all? Very well. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us tonight. Today. Yeah, no worries. No, really it's great confusing. It's confusing. Yeah, well, I think we just need to put it out there. This is our first and amazing face-to-face um, podcast, so the typically been over online. So this is really quite exciting for us here. So let's just start to get into it. We'd really love to hear about your backstory. Can you please tell us about yourselves and how did the organisation come about? I think you should start, Olivia. You're awesome. I'm, I'm the Dean. So, um, uh, hi, my name is Olivier, Olivier Kamea. Um, I survived of the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda. Um, I've been here in Australia uh, just a little bit over 23 years. Uh, and initially, the program I started to talk about uh, what happened in Rwanda, the minute I landed in Australia without a single word of English. And uh, getting inside the classroom was quite important for me to kind of belong in, in the community because I, I felt it was important to share my story and also learn uh, about the classroom I was going to be part of for many, many years. Um, and that was initially what I was doing and until I met Ari and, and uh, I found his, his approach much more organized than what I was doing. 
Uh, hence, uh, we put our heads together and we, we, we came with Kumba and Kuyuta. So we've been only around just over less than a year and a half, kind of formally as us. So I was lucky enough to meet Olivier when I was working at the Sydney Jewish Museum. And he came in to share his recollections when we did professional training on comparative genocide. And then the sort of germs of making this formalised. Uh, I was working with Kinchula Boys Home Aboriginal Corporation. And I said to the survivors I knew, I think you should come together and create an education program. So in one sense, what we're focused today on is that what we do is an education program. We're survivors of the genocide against the Tutsi. People like Olivier come into schools and they share their recollections with schools. Yeah, wow, that's really powerful. Um, in terms of the project, why do you think it's so important to listen to these stories and to remember? Mm. Uh, I think I'm going to speak as an outsider first. Okay. When I came to Australia and uh, people were asking me, where is Rwanda? Uh, this is something that potentially had, had an impact on my life and many people's lives to realize that actually wasn't not even uh, it didn't make news uh, it gives you a perspective of how little high significant um, when things are not properly how they perpetuate uh, the idea of, of not caring uh, so to that extent it was an eye-opener for me uh, and I thought if I have to go to classroom and assist teachers in understanding what they were teaching because it's one of those resources what what is a better way of of us providing that resources that first hand account to what happened in a structured safe and caring environment um, there is nothing better than having first-hand experience especially if you're a teacher uh, so that's pretty much the reason why I personally think it is important. Now, as also a classroom teacher, I think uh, the curriculum is so packed uh, that when you get these little uh, aids uh, or visual uh, stuff that help your students, there's nothing like it, uh, which I think. Uh, so I'm, uh, that's my contribution to this, yeah. this outfit. So, so, you know, my background is te I used to teach at university and I think we made a mistake at UNSW and I say for all due credence because I think we ran amazing comparative genocide studies courses, but due to the way universities work for various reasons, we didn't bring in the survivors' recollections, but in a good way, we also dealt with academically what oral history is and there's a shift that we provide, which is the idea of what does it mean Olivia comes in, what can only a survivor bring? So I think there are many reasons for listening and remembering. So Olivia might touch upon it today, but um, he's an orphan. So when we go into schools, we say, excuse me if I put words here, but you know, we, we try and personalize it. So if I, if I taught the Holocaust and said 6 million Jews are murdered or somewhere around 1.2 to 1.4 million people in Cambodia or 800,000 to a million people in Rwanda, that's an abstract, that's a number. And so having a human being who's there you can have a conversation with takes it out of that area. So part of my thinking for this program or my experience was why teach a student about genocide? And I think there are many reasons. And for us in Kumpo and Kwibuka, it's specifically about the genocide against the Tutsi. It's specifically about events in Africa. It's specifically about Olivia's story or other survivors. 
but it's also about saying this story is a human story. What happened in Rwanda changed Africa, culturally, politically, the ramifications are still being felt. It also had an impact on American global politics and that the world superpower had to rethink. And for all the problems of what we call Clinton's apology, at least there's a recognition the United States made a huge mistake politically, but also morally. Mm-hmm. So for me, the question of listening and remembering is taking out the abstract and saying, here's Olivia as a human being in front of you. This story is something you need to internalize and understand it not as just 6 million or 800,000, that Olivia is a human being and he needed his father. He loved his father. I will never get the pleasure of meeting Andre, but everything he's spoken about, Olivia shares part of his father's story or his mother, Suzanne. And it takes it out of being an abstract of just being that number. So part of listening and remembering for us as a program, amongst all things I'm tying in together, is to teach about the facts of it and the lived individual experience of what Olivia went through. And then it's saying this isn't something far away. This is a human story that teaches you essential things about what it means to be a human being. Meanwhile, saying to kids, this is about building compassion and empathy because maybe why you care about Olivia's story is intuitively you know you love your mother if you were lucky enough to have a mother or a father that you know and you know what it means to love your father or to be loved by your father and to know that that was taken away from Olivia or our other co-founders like Chantal or Agi and that's what we want to take it make it about facts make it about history make it all about the subjective experience but also say this story raises really important questions about simply what it means to be a human being yeah absolutely wow that was quite powerful And you've really highlighted multiple aspects about why it's so important for students and teachers to have, as you said, the academic research aspect, but grounding it with the personal stories and making it really human. And that connects us all, that connects us as humanity. So that really, yeah, um, speaks to the kind of, you know, what are you sort of hoping in terms of these skills that students and educators will take away. You sort of started to allude in terms of the empathy. What other sort of, yeah, skill sets are you hoping to achieve with the program? That's a good question. Um, I think uh, touching on what Ari said, when we try to personalise the learning, um, the, the ownership is on a student to unpack looking at, for example, the genocide against the Tutsi and see when the Holocaust happened and they said, never again. Why does it keep happening? Uh, So as a survivor, that is my question, but also the question of, say, the humanity betrayed me. If someone, if the most educated people uh, made this happen, uh, they observed it happening and they never did anything, now what is your role? Because you're still going to the same classroom, to the same structure, what is your role? What are you going to do uh, to make sure your individual uh, or your contribution is, is meaningful? Uh, if something happens to someone uh, 3,000 miles away who you never met, but you have made a policy or you were part of the political structure that made a policy that that decision went on and affected that person, do you feel personally responsible. So it comes down to not only the classroom is a learning space, but it's a personal space where people need to take individual responsibility, personal accountability. And that comes down to not only the student, but one of the things that amazed me is to hear a teacher 
delivering, as I say, a term of the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, but they have no idea, they have no resources, or they have nothing to tell the students what you are going to be looking at. Everything is in the abstract, uh, or at best, it's non-existent. They are looking at some of the, the resources that for us are problematic. Most of the schools we go to, they talk about things like we watch Hotel Rwanda. I go, you know how much problematic that is for a survivor like me? Mm-hmm. If I went through the story of that, you know uh, how problematic it is. But also it's important for the teacher then, if I'm going to teach it, better know what I'm talking about. Mm. It's not just another story because it becomes a story. This is more than that. Uh, so I think uh, in, in, in broad terms is to individualize as much as possible that learning space because history is one of those things that have an impact to inform the future. Mm. And people don't want to learn from the history. They just read it as textbook based. Mm. Uh, so we try... Now, as we are going to touch on, as we progress, we're going to touch on uh, a number of things we observed from the students, and some of them have been quite eye-opening. If we didn't think it would get to a point where some of the 14, 15 years old uh, think of their their role, when if that happened again, what would I do? Yeah. Yeah. So sort of motivate that social action. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, ooh. Can we just put this a bit close to you? Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Look, I think skills, like, I want teachers to know that there's clear stuff that we've thought through pedagogically. So I've been interviewing survivors for almost tw- over 20 years, roughly around 20 years, uh, for my doctorate. And then later on, when I moved to the Sydney Jewish Museum, then at Kinchula Boys Home, and now the amazing work. We do with our team. There's now eight African speakers, six survivors, a husband and a wife, um, one who's Burundi, one who's Rwandan, and they speak about their individual experience, but what it means to be married to a survivor. So for me, if I think there are many skills. A simple one is what is oral recollections? And we don't get too into detail in our program, but we touch upon it. But what we do that's unique in our program is we take in two survivors or two of our speakers. So for example, we have two survivors who are sisters but they were separated. One was taken at the age of 11 with her father and her siblings and a grandmother to a place called Murambi because um, they thought that would be safe because there had been um, sightings of um, Mary there, so it was considered a sacred place. And there ended up being a massacre there, and it's the second largest massacre memorial in Rwanda with about 50,000 human beings. And she witnessed most of the family murder Agi. So what Agi does is, like Olivia, I believe, incredibly complicated, incredibly courageous, incredibly important. I don't even have the vocabulary to express the significance of what it means for them to share their stories. But obviously, I believe deeply personally that it's incredibly profound and incredibly important. And so Agi was separated from her sister. Her sister, Chantal, is in a co-founder as well. She's 13. And what we're trying to show is what only Agi and Chantal can show, that Agi and Chantal were separated from their parents um, but she remembers it as an 11-year-old, Agi, or Chantal is a 13-year-old. Olivia is 20. It's his view as the 20-year-old going through it, who his father was, Andre, who his mother was, Suzanne. And so what we partially, when we bring in those two voices, is to see how they complement each other 
enrich each other and understand each and every story is unique and distinct. So within me, amongst all the different things, we might touch on the facts and details. We might put up a, a picture of a map and we might say, here's the memorial at Morambi. Here's um, where Olivier is in Kigali and why he has problems with Hotel Rwanda because he was only a few hundred meters away from um, Hotel de Colline. Um, but the other side is to go and say, history is not always about being objective. Part of the beauty is the subjectivity of Olivier's story. This is me, Olivier, sharing my story as only I can. And to say history is not always about being objective. So the last thing I'll say is we have a survivor like Agi, who's, as I said, survived by um, Murambi, where 50,000 men, women, and children were murdered. We also have a wonderful survivor, um, Lattice. And Lattice was at a place called Narama, where 5,000 people were murdered. And there's another genocide memorial site. And again, I think those are big numbers. They almost don't mean anything. So I'm trying to make it an individual's. Lattice is a little bit older. He's 13. And they're going through exactly the same thing, but also something profoundly different. If I could make my students objective about what Ladder saw or what Aggie saw or the objective they saw thousands of human beings murdered, why would I want to do that to the student? And what would that even look like? So I think the exact opposite. I think sometimes history is about being subjective. I judge what happened in Morambi from an emotional subjective space, that it's a heartbreaking tragedy. And then I have a moral judgment too. So part of what we do in Kumbar and Quibbleka is, even though we don't always say it explicitly, it's about understanding history is not always about being objective. It's about the importance of actually having a subjective emotional engagement. And the best historians, in my opinion, come from a place of empathy, understanding why these decisions were made. Wow, that's quite profound and quite heavy, some of the things that have just been raised. Thank you. And... Just on that note, you know, there is quite a bit of heaviness here and yet we are, it is deeply personal and subjective. How, how do you explore and unpack such difficult topics within a teaching environment mm. and what kind of impact does that have on you as the storyteller, retelling the story, and then for the classroom? Uh, thank you for the question. I think personally because uh, my engagement has been uh, from very early on, it has been uh, a journey I have consciously taken to talk about my story. But I'm very mindful that each one of our team members, uh, even a, every survivor, will all go, go through different journeys. So the healing space is deeply personal. It's a personal one because we all have different stories. We can touch on the same event uh, uh, in a different, um, with a different eye on it. But what I have found for me personally is that it helps me. I don't keep that in. And what I hope when I share that with my, whatever I say, my, my students, is that the worst thing uh, to think is that you lose hope in humanity. Um, and my story is about, I'm, I'm not in your classroom, so you feel sorry for me. I'm in your class. You see what happened as a lesson, and hopefully you make sure it doesn't happen again to anyone, to any of you. And we use little anecdotes for them, for example, who has a phone, 
who takes photos, who kind of by, uh, become a bystander to something happening in the in the playground. And here we are teaching you about things that happened in history, not only 30 years ago, in my case, 75 years ago. It is it's the same. It, it, it's human doing violent stuff to another human being. Uh, so the, the, the job for me is not to kind of internalize what I'm feeling in a classroom, uh, but at the same time acknowledging that each one of our students has an individual attribute to take really, really seriously uh, to be able to make that change we are all want. Because if everyone took that personal responsibility, I will not have lost my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will not have uh, people in high places discussing whether it was important to send help to save my parents and my family. Uh, so in that case, those students who are going to become future leaders, they have to understand their place in history when we go into their classroom is to spark that. Because these days, it's much easier to follow the crowd. And both society, both Rwanda, if you, you look at Germany, they were highly, highly educated people who decided to do things you would think will not happen in an educated society. So, and you have the most educated, the most connected generation of our time hearing about it. And we want to make sure if we can help it, that they make a different decision when that happens. So for me, it helps to know that I'm shaping hopefully something that may not happen again in the future. And that is the hope for me when I go in the classroom. But also it's, it's a therapy. I found that when I speak about it, it's kind of therapy. Mm. Uh, it gets easier. And I have observed, also observed some of my teammates starting to kind of open up because it's one thing to own your pain, but it's also seeing uh, someone else pain. And they would always say it's about empathy, mm. uh, having, uh, uh, cultivating or inspiring that kind of empathy to be able to be in someone's shoes. So when you make a decision, it is it comes from a place of empathy. I think, you know, you're right, it's heavy. And I think anyone who's listening to this would hopefully see and feel like the sensitivity which Olivier speaks to. And I think also we've got a lot of knowledge and experience. And we've got a beautiful team. So, for example, we have two teammates, Yvonne and Lambert, and they live up in Newcastle. Any teachers out in Newcastle would love to come. Um, but why I'm saying this is like there's this beautiful thing that happens because then you've got a husband and wife speaking together. Um, they're both survivors. And what it means for somebody to come into a space that's not there as a school and share very vulnerable, open emotions. So my experience of this and now probably taught literally, I guess, hundreds of thousands of students from university down to we do this program with year six kids who have been amazing is there's ways to unpackage it so we don't simply walk into a classroom and start telling the story. We open up um, with basic questions, even just about geography of Rwanda, just about how things are culturally different because in our program we make sure it's constantly interactive and we have the two voices from Africa in there and I'm guiding the interview through, but at least we open up that so it's an easy, safe question. Asking a student when they look on a map 
on the globe and they'll see in Rwanda what strikes them as geographically different to Australia. And from that come out issues of history and culture, like, for example, the fact that we're an island and a very large island and a continent as opposed to a tiny, small, small landlocked country. So if I said, Olivia, how many languages do you speak? Uh, five. No, four. So, so, you know, so uh, you know, for most Australians, they, they would say like, you know, one or two mostly. If I said, how many siblings did you have before the genocide? Seven. I was one of the seven. So, so all, and so when we speak about that, then we, these things make a different cultural reality. So it's an easy, safe space. And once something we made a distinct decision when I discussed creating Kumbo and Kwebuka, I said, we need to speak about childhood beforehand because that's a number of reasons. One is Olivia would not be the same person if he hadn't gone through the genocide against the Tutsi. Agi, who's 11, is in some sense much less formed emotionally and mentally. So as an 11-year-old, witnessing members of her family being murdered in front of her, there are certain things that break and there are certain things that don't heal. And students, I think, need to understand that and not martyrdom, suffering, but every survivor has to be happy and okay. Mm. But also what it means that, yes, Agi comes into a space and she's becoming a better and better speaker and she's definitely on a journey of healing her journey of speaking and articulating her trauma and being vulnerable has been one of self-discovery and healing but at the same time saying an 11 year old because she went through that she will never be who she would have been if she hadn't gone through this cataclysmic event so we've always begun with the childhood so the Chantal about playing soccer i'm going to church what your father was like happy memories Chantal will describe remembering her father riding a motorbike down and they would sit on the back and it'd be a special ride because there were many cars or motorbikes um, in the town that she grew up in, only 3,000, 5,000 people. And that's a happy memory. Or Lattice describes growing up in an agricultural farm and going out into the bush where they'd take the cows to feed or the goats to eat the weeds or whatever it was. I'm blurring it. But, and he says, you know, we, we, ate, we had special food that we cooked, right? Or it's the hours of playing street ball. So we go and say it's not survivors, not only survivor. They're also their childhood before, their family and culture. And genocide doesn't just destroy human beings physically. It also destroys community, family, and those worlds that they described and created. So we're given time as a lead-in, and yeah. we always stop at each point. So now that, say, Olivier and, for example, Chantal shared their story, we stop and then give time for questions. And it creates a safe place of learning. Oh, now they know Olivia a bit. They spend 30, 40 minutes talking. Yeah. And then we create a conversation about their experience during the genocide. And then stop afterwards for more questions. So what I love about our program is most schools have given us the time and we go in for two hours. Wow. And what you see is most students, they're not everyone I see people patronize the younger generations. Most of the time, like you can hear a pin drop. And I used to early do on in our programs, click how many questions we get. It's 30, 40 questions for most programs. Because I think we have successfully created a safe space. But we're unpackaging it and making sure that we're dealing with this event honestly. Lattice, for example, our survivor, he saw his two aunts murdered in front of him. He had to bury his father's body. We need to and want to speak to that. We need to and have to speak to Olivier's experience. And students are inherently asking questions about how did human beings do this to other human beings? Mm. And how does one survive this? What impact does it have on your ability to love, your ability to have faith and personal resilience? And we're modeling all of that for them. And so the final thing that we try and do to make this the safe thing is we come out with a safe message, whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, so that while there's this darkness, and it's a darkness I think we have to acknowledge mm-hmm. and speak about human beings' capacity for cruelty, what we also speak about is capacity for empathy and love. Yeah. And so we try and wrap up 
that leave our students in that positive space. Instilling that, yeah, that light and, yeah, positivity. That's quite a journey and it's really powerful that it's um, multi-pronged in terms of self-healing but almost a healing historically and for students as well and educators that are involved. Yeah, absolutely. It's really impressive. Yeah. I think adding to what Ari said, um, uh, really when we were thinking about this, um, I mean, his experience as, as uh, an educator at a higher level, also uh, speaking to most uh, survivors of, of the Holocaust or the genocide, and me going into classroom early on and just being very annoyed at seeing what I'm saying is going over people's head because I was not packaging it properly. So there had to be a way to kind of package it in a way that it is safe for the classroom, um, in a way that makes them feel that they, or they own the space, mm -hmm. I'm feeling safe, even though I'm being exposed. Because make no mistake, we... Uh, most parents tend to shield their parents to the evil of the society, but we know it exists. Mm -hmm. Although we bring this, uh, yes, it's kind of that, but we've lived through it and we are modeling that you can actually get through it. We don't have a formula on how to go through it, but we are telling you on if you take this on as, as a journey, there's going to be a process, there's going to be tools you can use, you got it. You know, you go in a classroom, you're being educated, you got this. Uh, so you, it's, it's your, your place, how you choose to use um, that time we give you, uh, because we are tell them, at the end of the day, if I go out of this room and you haven't asked me a burning question, so long as you ask it respectfully, mindfully, it's a good question. And we found that, as Ari said, it's about 30 questions most of the time from students, 14, 15, 16 years old, very intelligent questions. And uh, from observation, it's been nothing but a very good learning experience for us because we are also learning how to, to make the program better. Amazing. We're all on the journey and we're all learners and, and teachers at the same time. It's amazing you've got that opportunity and, and demonstrating that throughout the project. In terms of um, those questions, just wanted to ask the two of you, what's one of those aha or inspirational moments you've had in a program, something that really, you know, stands out for you and you really hold in your heart? Would you be able to share one of those moments? You want to go first? <laughs> you the one who does the clickers. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got a lot. I think there have been. I would say there have been so many yeah, amazing questions. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it genuinely. Yeah. I think it goes both ways. When even I always just say when I see a survivor articulate something. <clears throat> so I say I'll say as an example in front of this group of sixteen-year-old um, kids who are on a summer pro a, uh, program during April holidays. We were sitting around, and I just love the way Olivia articulated about the need to like. I'm going to paraphrase. I'm doing a bad job, but. Just when I saw Olivia, because it's been such a beautiful, intimate group, it was only an hour, and he just said, talked about their need to bring beauty into the world. And it really moved me also what the survivors articulated, because it's a relationship. It's not simply us sharing, it's how they respond or what the response, responses they cause to elicit amongst our survivor team and our, their spouses. So it's both ways. But I'll, you know, I'll give you a quick, we're at PLC, Pimbles Ladies College, in one of our first programs. And I'm going to use this as an example because we don't even, this was our second round together. Chantal, our beautiful survivor who was speaking, hadn't spoken publicly 
in three, four years since I'd interviewed her, two or two or three years, because I used to interview her also at the Sydney Jewish Museum. And she's, I mean, this is a compliment, she's very fragile. And it was beautiful. Her art was, no, Shanice was there that day. The PLC, your daughter was there, Shanice. And it was lovely because we we sometimes bring the children, the survivors there. And it was a big hall, year 11, year 12 together, legal studies program, 180 students or something. So quite a large group. And we only had an hour that day. Things ran, they ran late, like whatever it was. And this Olivia tells a story about this, his father telling him he needs to have his, like speak truth to himself, whatever his journey was, like a notion of enlightenment. I have to be authentic to who I am as a human being. And he said this right at the beginning. So that's our first part of our program. So this is like 10 minutes in, the end of the program and doing questions. And this student asks and says, what have you come to your own truth? Like what has been your truth? And Olivia was so and said, I hadn't really thought about it. And said, he had to think. And he gave a really beautiful response just on the spur of the moment. But I see that happen a lot. And this young woman came up to the end and you could see how moved she was. So that's the two, so both sides. And I will add one example because I gave it all girls school. I mean, like Newington, these schools have been amazing supporting a program like ours in its infancy that we're working on. It's very embryonic. It's very fragile. I'm overthinking it or underthinking it. These teams are like, what they're doing 30 years after the genocide is astonishing. And we were at Newington Boys the other day and Aggie um, was speaking at this all boys school for the first time. And we were doing something totally new, speaking about our anthology we published called A Book of Love and Loss which our co-founders had all written stuff, including obviously Olivier. And these boys came up to Aggie at the end. And I don't even, I didn't hear what they said, but I could see that several of them were really emotional and crying. And Aggie came out at the end and we were talking and she, she was like, she, she felt really, really good. Like a heaviness of being gone. She said, these boys just came up to me and want to just tell me how much they cared and how much they were moved by what I had to say. And that's part of what we're doing. That she was like, these strangers who met me for two hours in this panel, we only spoke for like five, 10 minutes. We we're all sharing our stories. They were touched and moved. It wasn't just a story about Tootsie. It was Aggie and they cared for Aggie, which is why they were moved and had such a strong emotional response. I found those two beautiful, fragile and sublime moments for me. Uh, for me, it was recent, recent experience uh, when I was speaking to, when was, uh, we did a program you can rattle off so many schools. Let's do it now. So you can <laughs> we all girls, and um, as as you do in history, we talk about the role of the UN, the failure of UN in all this. And go, if you guys manage to uh, take your responsibility personally, go and uh, change the UN how it works. Think differently because it has failed so many times. It's history. We're talking about history. Therefore, this old body that doesn't serve any purpose, you need to change it. And then one of the girls, I've never been asked that question. She goes, so how do you think if, for example, I was going to go at you in, you, in the, become one of UN representative, how do you think I'll go about changing how the UN works? <laughs> so I go, now you start a journey. Yeah? So you have found something that may inspire you to go and think about UN as not just this whole body where people go and get paid big bucks and just nothing that works outside that body. And and it it was a beautiful question. Um, I haven't haven't heard it from any student. 
amazing. I love the way it was turned around. Yeah. And I love that process that we're forever learning and, yeah. and celebrating and encouraging curiosity and questions is just so imperative to that journey. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah before we wrap up is there anything that you'd like to share or add in terms of um, our conversation today could, could I flag a couple of things I mean yeah, absolutely I, I think um, we've spoken about so much but I will say you know part of what when I approached the team is I said it's about you sharing your stories and coming into a space with that, that human face-to-face contact so but on top of that we did publish an anthology and when Olivia says you know how many languages you speak and like he wrote um, for part of the anthology we published, which we mentioned before, called a book I love and loss. Chantal and Agi were involved, and so was Amade, uh, my Burundi, who's married to Agi, and he's a beautiful member of our team as well. And we also involved um, Olivier's um, daughter, Shanice, who's 20, and um, Chantal's daughter, who's 10. And she wrote pieces. We did a 10-week writing course through Westwards. And like any book, like I'll say I'm a failed writer. I studied playwriting at NIDA many, many years ago, and I'm passionate about what words do. In one sense, all we have is words to communicate our dreams, our fears, our hopes, to share this complex history, but this personalized history. So I'm really proud of the fact, and I think it's amazing. Like, I think it's really hard to write in English. If everyone could write, there'd be way better books around. I mean, a lot of amazing books, amazing books, but it's hard to write. And what our survivors did is, again, astonishing. I have no other word for it, that 30 years after this event, none of them wanted to be writers. English is their fourth or fifth language. Uh, it's not related to any of the languages. The closest related language is French, which is very different to English. And yet we're on the beginning of a journey where they all wrote parts of their anthology. And I will say this, like, so I'll say I'm a pretty good writer. Like I wrote theater, like in theater, I worked for many years, failed as a writer in the end, no problem with that. But, but the reason why I'm saying this like, is I know how hard it is to write. And so I was really amazed and really proud of what our team was able to write in that anthology, that they are on a journey becoming more and more articulate storytellers more able to share uh, all of them and me too because it's such an intimate space we're in and so for me it's the, uh, I think it's really hard being a teacher out there now I hear it from all my friends and we're privileged so I say well I think we've got 28 schools this year which is amazing and hopefully we'll get more to make this succeed and but the reason why I'm saying I hear it constantly from teachers how tough it is post-COVID and so for me, I will say, I'm sure it's really hard being right there at the furnace of working with students, but for all the different schools we go in, like some of them will say, without mentioning school, they've got a rep on the outside for not being the easiest to work with, or the social dynamics can be apparently very problematic, a lot of bullying, a lot of racism, a lot of not good learning. And we go in, and I'm constantly impressed by how attentive and respectful the students are. And so I find that also incredibly inspiring. Yeah, found a classroom, um, any classroom we went to, uh, we found them uh, receptive, um, respectful, and what we think this program will bring on top of what, for example, a teacher has to use in their classroom is that authentic yeah. resource. Uh, to teach, personally, for example, me as a teacher, to be able to teach something without an idea behind on what I'm going to do is just, it's daunting. So uh, one of the things I think would be beneficial to the teachers of history is to know that should you want to teach about the Holocaust or the genocide, um, even legal studies, because Rwanda 
um, brought so many um, positive changes, although it's, uh, it was traumatic, when we go to that space and we show out of this, there's some positive, uh, not everything in life is, is, is you, know, you may see things outside your place being bleak. Uh, there's always that element of hope. So we bring that in the classroom. Uh, I found that students who uh, who have this empathy, they can also sense when their teacher is struggling. And those are uh, some of the aspects we, we hopefully want to inspire our students to have. Uh, because it's it's difficult for everyone, not only teachers, but also students. They may be struggling with other things. And when they get to hear this story from eight of us, at some point, it may change the way they see they see life in general. And so we are not only going to classroom as uh, which here want to inspire you to become a better human being, but be, be responsible when we talk about their role as you know, some students don't get, for example, what it is. Uh, if you love music, how that will have been used as a propaganda tool to inspire hate. Uh, if you were an accountant or a banker, they don't get to connect what does that historically. They just think it's a, it, it's a, a job or an occupation without looking how those things may connect or interconnect amongst each other to then deliver a policy that is going to be um, uh, calamitous to someone's life. Yeah. Uh, so when we get to a point where a student take, I love music, and I'm going to use music for good. That's our role. Uh, partially is done because they have to do the work themselves. Uh, so we think this program is going to be very beneficial to teachers who want to touch on this sensitive topic, but it's one they can't hide away from. So true. Thank you so much for sharing today. You're welcome. Thank you so much for um, demonstrating so clearly with your project the power of listening and remembering and how that can enhance and build resilience within school communities and beyond. Really, thank you so much for the, the authenticity, the warmth and compassion. Thank you. What a cause it. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode. For further information on the AIS New South Wales Community Cohesion podcast series and project, or any of our guests, please see our show notes.